Welcome to this very special Hacker Valley Red mini season where we're going to be dissecting the CrowdStrike Global Threat Report of 2022 with the great help of Adam Myers, head of intelligence at CrowdStrike. In this three-part series, we're going to dive into ransomware, advanced persistent threats, and the threats to the cloud. But first, what in the world is going on with ransomware? Let's jump right in. Welcome to Hacker Valley Red, where we explore the nexus of cybersecurity offense and humanity with a hacker's mindset. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Chris Cochran. And I'm your other host, Ron Eddings. This season in Hacker Valley Red, we're going to be reviewing and highlighting elements shared in the CrowdStrike 2022 Global Threat Report. And to make all of this happen, we've brought in CrowdStrike's very own head of intelligence, Adam Myers. We have a lot to cover in just this season alone, but I think we're ready for it. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on this season. Thanks for having me. We have to get to the meat of the matter. Obviously, CrowdStrike puts together this incredible global threat report. But first, for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. My background is that I spent about 10 years working in the defense industrial base, working with the intelligence community, the military, and civilian government. I started off doing a lot of pen testing and kind of offensive type stuff, and then I moved over to hunting down bad guys and uh, spent a bunch of time over in that capacity working with the State Department at uh, Diplomatic Security, where that was kind of the job, was was looking for threats to, to the department and to the USG and, and trying to figure out who they are and how they operate and how we could stop them. Let's stop these bad guys. And, and let's also talk about what the bad guys are doing. You know, this first episode, we were hoping to speak about big game hunting and ransomware and really start to dissect and understand the state of ransomware today. When I first learned about ransomware, it was, I think, around 2015, and so much has changed since then, but we'd love to hear a fresh perspective of, you know, what is going on in the world of ransomware and what is this whole concept of big game hunting in the, in the perspective of ransomware? Yeah, I, I think you couldn't have set it up better than starting off by talking about the 2015 timeframe, because back in those days, ransomware really was targeting individuals. It would hit mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, lock up their taxes and their, their home photos. And that was two, three hundred dollars to get it unlocked. And, and that's what ransomware really was at the time. What happened in about 2016, 2017 was that the threat actors, the criminal threat actors who were primarily engaged in account takeover, wire fraud type activity. You know, this is scraping your bank credentials and your credit card information and then abusing that on the back end. They recognized that there was some money to be made in this ransomware game, but they, they figured out what they should do is rather than go after individuals, go after companies, right? Well, Sutton's that bank robber that's always been credited with the, you know, they'd ask him, why do you rob banks? And he said, that's where the money is. And I think that the criminal threat actors, the e-criminals out there recognize that there was a lot of money in this ransomware. And if they could go after enterprises that had massive revenues, then they can make a lot of money. And they were right. So when we take a look at last year and the evolution of 
some of the attacks that we've seen, there's obviously been a huge increase in the lock and leak operations out there. In the report, that they tend to have a theme. Each theme, no matter if you're looking at this report or any other report, and the, the theme for this year was adaptability and perseverance. So when you think about it from the context of the defender and this increase of lock and leak operations, what has been the most impactful thing for the day-to-day? Well, you know, I think maybe the lock and leak is a little bit more on the Iran threat actor side. This is kind of disingenuous ransomware, and it it looks a lot like ransomware, but it's it's really a disruptive attack. What I think, you know, the the big story this year is, and, and the thing that's crazy to think about is one of the big changes has been what we're seeing as data extortion or, or data leaks. And this is pretty significant. We saw an 82% increase in this activity by these big game hunters over the last year. And I think it reflects a couple of things. First of all, lots of organizations have robust backup solutions now because they've been reading about ransomware for the last three years and, and what happens if you don't have good backups, right? Your, your files get encrypted, you have to pay to get them back. So lots of organizations have brought these robust backup solutions into play. What also is happening is that they're telling these ransomware actors to pound send because they don't need to pay to get their files unlocked because they have the backups. And so the threat actors recognized that they needed to innovate or to pivot. And so now what they do, they steal lots of really sensitive information. They exfiltrate it out. And when they exfiltrate it out, they, they store it and they tell these companies, look, we're going to leak this if you don't pay us. And this is, there's a couple of dynamics here that I think are really interesting to me. The first one is that by stealing the data versus encrypting it, it gives these threat actors leverage. It gives them a, a, a control point in the negotiation. So if you've never been part of a ransomware negotiation, hopefully you haven't, or any negotiation really, you, you know, one of the tactics that a lot of people will employ is to, to kind of stall, right? Oh, we can't get the money together, right? You, you've probably seen this in movies when they're like, oh, I'm not authorized to get you a pizza in this hostage situation <laughs> or whatever, right? So right. <laughs> it's like that with ransomware, right? oh, we can't get the money together. We don't have Bitcoin. What's Bitcoin? We're going to need you to show us that you have the data before we pay you. And by kind of dragging these things out, you know, th the hope is to whittle down the, the actor and be able to kind of get the price down. It also is a bit of a, you know, hoping that they make a mistake or, or show frustration or emotion that you can take advantage of. When the data is stolen, they they gives the control back to that threat actor because when you start trying to stall or you start saying oh we don't have bitcoin they're like great well we're going to leak a gig of your sensitive data to the internet and maybe you'll find the money faster now and so it, it becomes a control factor the other thing that this that you know is, is worth considering here is that the actual ransom demand probably pales in comparison to the, the compliance and regulatory and legal impact to the company when that, right. da that data gets leaked, right? If it's HIPAA data or, you know, shareholder data, like whatever it might be, there, there could be a class action lawsuit. This could be very, very expensive for the company. So paying in, in the data theft scenario actually becomes a little bit more appealing, I think, because they recognize that this problem can go away if they just pay for it. That is a complete role reversal. It's pretty scary to think about. I was about to say, you just exposed the game. Like, we we can't, like, let everyone know you have to delay the ransom payment. But you're like, hey, they already know and have changed their tactics to 
put the pressure back on the person that has their data stolen or even encrypted. And one metric that you mentioned was the 82% increase. I would love to know, you know, some of your perspective on whether or not people are paying these ransoms silently without contributing to that 82%, you know, like hidden metrics. And also, can you give us any insight on how these, you know, metrics and statistics are calculated at CrowdStrike? Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's be clear. First of all, that 82% is an increase in incidents. I don't know that they've been paid or not. What I could tell you is that in 2020, we observed 1,474 big game hunting incidents that involve some data theft, data leak component to it. And in 2021, it was 2,686. So it has gone up substantially. And it, I think, reflects that there's an, this tactic has been embraced by these threat actors. The way that we compute this, um, you know, CrowdStrike has technology and services and intelligence all kind of swirled together. So we have millions of endpoints in 187 different countries, I believe, last time I checked. We have uh, services personnel that are going out and doing incident response investigations. So when you read about a breach, there's a pretty good chance that we've got boots on the ground, so to speak, uh, though most of the time they do this virtually. We don't actually need to deploy anybody. And they're assisting in that investigation. And then we have the Intel team that's also kind of tracking what's going on in, in underground communities and things like that. And we bring all of this together, and that gives us some perspective into the number of incidents that we see, the average ransom demand. And, you know, it's, it's pretty appalling when you look at it that there's something like 50 or so events, you know, big game hunting events in any given week. And the average ransom demand in... 2021 was 6.1 million dollars so that's Ooh. you know some mm. possibly 300 million dollars every week in ransom demands that's up that 6.1 million is up 36 percent. now that doesn't mean that they all get paid that doesn't mean that they get the full amount but what that tells you is that in any given week there's at least you know hundreds of millions of dollars of opportunity to get paid that's incredible. And when you're speaking about some of these facts and figures, I mean, it must be an incredible amount of information that you're distilling down into digestible chunks. What goes into creating a report like the Global Threat Report? Because, I mean, there's so much information. Obviously, I, I can see how much work goes into it because I spent pretty much the majority of my career as a threat intelligence analyst. So could you give us a little peek under the hood as like how the sausage is made? Yeah, so I mean, my my Intel team at CrowdStrike is well over 150 people. We wow. produce thousands of intelligence reports every year, and so those can be really short reports, you know, that that are more tactical or 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 kind of um, actionable in, in nature. There's longer reports that are are more in depth, looking at campaign level analysis or malware analysis or adversary analysis. And then there's longer reports that are strategic in nature. You know, what are the Chinese doing? And I, I'm sure we'll get into this, right? But what are the Chinese doing, you know, with regards to things like the Belt and Road Initiative and the 14th Five-Year Plan? And that really helps organizations start to not just understand what's going on in the threat actor kind of technical landscape, but start thinking about how they can protect their business by looking at a horizon that's six, nine, 12 months out or three, four, five years out as well. So with all of these reports that we produce, this really becomes the kind of building blocks of the global threat report. 
the global threat report is actually a very small version of the annual report that our customers receive. So we we kind of sliced off the things that we we thought were most digestible, and you know the level of effort that goes into that annual report is is tremendous. Hopefully, no one's uh, going back in time and calculating all of these metrics by hand. I would imagine that you all have like some some data science and analytics that you are you know using to uh, review this information and also store this information. Yeah, it's all part of the process. There's actually something that we we have out there that's you know freely available. You can look at it online. It's at adversary.crowdstrike.com, and we call it the eCrime Index. And what we looked at last year, and this was introduced last year in the Global Threat Report, was there's this vibrant underground economy, right? There's there's different people in there. There's different products and services and tools, and we were thinking, what what could we do to kind of measure that? How do we how do we look at this underground economy? And what we did was we borrowed, I should say, from the Dow Jones. And we looked at the Dow Jones Industrial uh, Index. And we, we saw that, you know, that goes back to the late 1800s. And they were looking at different industrial stocks as a marker of the overall health of the economy and kind of swirled that together and came up with this, this composite index. And we did the same thing with the underground. So looking at the prices of things that you can in the underground, right? Stolen accounts and the amount of ransom demands that we were able to track and the number of ransomware incidents. And there's, I think, 34 different observables that we've identified. And we've kind of swirled that together into an index. And when we looked at that index over the last year, it was really interesting because there's always a high point in that index, right? The, The market's good when Microsoft releases 56 vulnerabilities, 11 of which are critical, when you know there's there's exploits for Microsoft Exchange or some of these you know VPN devices and things like that, and it goes down when there's media attention. When you know the Colonial Pipeline or JBS or Kaseya, like when that starts getting into the media and you start hearing politicians and law enforcement and the intelligence community starting to talk about ransomware, they kind of pull back. And so it's it's kind of interesting that all of this stuff is is observable and interconnected. It really is. And I would love to hear a bit more about, you know, the e-crime index. Like, what would I be able to get as a defender or a security organization? What would I really be looking for when I'm looking at the e-crime index? And also, when you're talking about these tactics that are being used, what has been the one that's been most surprising or shocking to you? Well, you know, on the e-crime index, I think that it... I don't have a good answer for that. I don't know that we really know. It's just kind of something we've we thought was interesting, and we wanted to share it with with the rest of the community. Um, you know, I, I guess maybe if you watch the trend on that e crime index and you see that it's going up, there's probably a reason for that. There, I mean, that means that there's more activity in the underground. There's there's more uh, reason to be concerned, and and you should probably be more ready at that point. And when it's lower. You know, there's there's likely something going on that's driving that that economy down. And so maybe, you know, that's there's less risk at that point in time. But again, you know, this is still kind of a, a work in progress. Right. And in terms of the tactics, you know, I think that the tactics are largely not surprising. Right. And in, in the things that, that you guys have covered in the past and that your listeners are used to dealing with are the fact that, you know, People still click on email attachments from people that they don't know. People still 
are are you know doing these things now you know we're seeing a trend where more vulnerabilities are going after platforms they're going after managed services and things like that and and we've seen that uh, across the spectrum but you know it's it's still a lot of the same challenges and i think where organizations are are starting to think about is where can they put their chips on defensive processes and technologies and strategies to really get the most value for it. Let's go back to the maturation for a moment. We spoke a little bit about the maturation of ransomware from a targeting perspective, but also from a technical perspective. I remember there, you know, of course there being the targeting of mom and pop shops, just regular people. But then they even got to the point that there was so much money in the ransomware industry and the e-crime industry that you now have entire business models that are built around ransomware, right? Ransomware is a service. You have help desk making sure that your ransomware campaign goes off without a hitch. Is there any more maturation that you're seeing in that space? From a ransomware perspective, we are seeing, you know, I think that Ransomware as a service has been a very popular model. We're seeing that a lot of these ransomware have been rebranding, especially over the last year with some of the law enforcement attention and disruptions that have occurred. And we're seeing that, you know, they're, they're really just expanding. The more people doing ransomware, right? This is an attractive model if you're kind of an up and coming, coming e-crimer, you know, th- that you can get into this for pretty cheap. And one of the things that we're increasingly seeing becoming a component of the ecosystem is access brokers. Access brokers are people that hack in, right? They get the latest vulnerability, they figure out a way to exploit it, and then they start going after multiple targets. Once they get in, they then advertise that target. They look at their revenue and they, they look at the location and they look at the industry. And then they use that to generate a you know, this is what it will cost. So for two, three, five thousand $5,000 maybe, you buy access to a compromised environment and now your, your main job now is to figure out which ransomware you're going to deploy and, and how you're going to deploy it. So that is, I think, something that it has been an a interesting activity over the last year. We've seen that that has become very popular using these access brokers and the, the, the use of various exploits by access brokers. Yeah, it's definitely a a paradigm shift and taking advantage of an opportunity. And I would imagine that over the course of the past two years, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic and through digital transformation, a lot has changed for not only the defender, but the attacker also. What are some shifts that you've seen with uh, that adversary activity after, you know, people started working from home? uh, We started shifting more to cloud and SaaS services. How has that changed the tactics and the way that uh, the adversaries are moving? You know, I think it just was, it was more about the volume than that there was a significant change in tactics. Mm. We, we, we observed certainly that, you know, the digital strategy of many companies changed radically in March of 2020 when the lockdown started. You know, I think what, what that really did was it opened up larger attack surface and more threat actors kind of came in to take advantage of that. So if we look at, what we observe from 2020 to 2021, I mean, there's no vertical that we track where there's any decline in ransomware activity. Industry and engineering, manufacturing up, technology up, professional services more than doubled, financial services up, healthcare up. And 
you know, a, there's all these verticals, legal, academia, logistics, they're, they're going after targets that have to be up and running. They have what I, I call like an operational imperative. You know, right in 2019, one of the interesting things we observed in the summer, late summer, was that ransomware actors were going after school districts. And they recognized that if they go after a school district when everybody's trying to get enrolled and try to get going and, you know, you take out the VoIP phone system and stuff through a ransomware attack, that those schools are likely to pay, right? They, they look for industrial and engineering and manufacturing and technology because you can measure downtime in dollars. And at very quickly after a ransomware attack, the amount of that downtime exceeds the ransom demand. And that changes the calculus of do we pay or do we not pay? And, you know, that is, I think, one of the things, you know, as we get back to that COVID-19 and, and how that impacted the landscape, I think what it what it did was it, it meant that there were more threat actors with more targets to go after. And we observed, you know, the continued spike. This is going on, you know, two or three years now of just an explosion of enterprise ransomware, big game hunting. So there's a, a complete correlation with the industry that's being targeted with the need for it to be available is what you're saying? A hundred percent. Yep. That's incredible because, you know, you would think that they would want to go after just the folks with the most money, right? So if I had to just, without even looking at any data, I would say, oh, wow, definitely big tech because if big tech isn't up, there's going to be a lot of a loss of money. But when you look at the report, you're right. Industrial engineering, manufacturing, far exceeds what technology is. What, why is it that, do you think there's also a piece to it where the technology might not be as secure in some of those industries that they, they might be working on a lot of legacy systems, which might make it easier for like a ransomware campaign? It, it could be that. It could also be the complexity, right? If you take out the billing backend systems of industrials and engineering's, and they can't, they can't ship, they can't bill, they can't do any of the business functions. You know, they're not disrupting the factories, but they're disrupting the business functions. The Colonial Pipeline incident's a good example of that too. The pipeline was shut down by the pipeline operator, as I understand it. It was not shut down by the threat actor. Right. Why would, the, why would they shut that down? Well, probably because they couldn't do any of that back-end billing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that, if you're trying to disrupt a technology platform, you know, think of like some sort of SaaS or something like that. You have to understand how that platform works in order to bring it down in a way that you can quickly bring it back up. And so I think that the complexity certainly goes up there. When you hear the term APT, the key word for me that stands out is persistent. You know, these adversaries, uh, cyber criminals, they're persistent in their activity and persistent in their pursuit to disrupt business operations, to steal data, or to collect money through ransom. And over time, I've been asking myself, and we've even asked a few guests about this idea of keeping the bad guys out, building an unhackable system. We know that's not possible, though, but <laughs> there, it is possible to mitigate. And, you know, through all of the data and information that you've collected, and even ransoms that you've seen, what has been the common factor here? What is the common factor behind breaches and behind organizations ultimately paying the ransom because of missing other opportunities to secure their data? What's been the common thread there for you, Adam? Every single one of them have had computers. Mm -hmm. 
I, you know, I think the, um, you had a guest on a previous season that was talking about that hacker mindset of, of when, when you fail, you try again, when you fall down, you keep going. Mm-hmm. And that's the persistence that you just hit on. Right. And a hundred percent, I think that that is the thing that is all these threat actors have in common is that they're going to keep trying. They're going to keep going with the e-crime actors in particular they're not super focused on one particular target as much as they're super focused on making money through this scheme that they have going on this operation. And, you know, to, to, your, I think to get to your, your question, you don't have to run faster than the bear. You just have to run faster than the guy next to you. And so if you make yourself a harder target, if you make yourself more secure than your competitors and, and your, your peers, and the threat actor has a hard time. They're they're like Bruce Lee, right? They they f- be like water. Uh, was was the quote that I always think about when I think about threat actors. They take the path of least resistance. They go the easiest way that they can to get to their objective. Right. And if you're a hard target, they're gonna go to somebody else. Absolutely. And I love that you bring up Bruce Lee quite often. Bruce Lee is one of my favorite people in history, but also my favorite philosopher. So when you think about Taking the the essentials and throwing the rest away is what I think about when I think about the progression of attacks, when I think about the progression of threats. From your perspective, as an intelligence analyst yourself, I'm sure you think about predictions quite often, and, and that sometimes can be the bane of the existence of an intel person. But if you had to put your money on anything in the future from a ransomware perspective, what would you put your money on? Well, I would think about it more in terms of assessments and that's what we, that's what we do, right? With all of our Intel reports is try to figure out like, what can, what kind of assessment can we make? What kind of thing can we say and and wrap that with some estimative language so that we can convey what our thinking is. And I think I would say that it is likely that these ransomware actors are going to increasingly move to data extortion and perhaps solely data extortion because the mitigations that are being put in place today, the fact that people are saying that they're not going to pay for, for decryption and they're not, they're not willing to negotiate to decrypt files means that they're, you know, that, that financial avenue for them kind of dries up. And so rather than try to figure out a way to make that work, they're going to move on to something that does work, which is data extortion. Excellent. So this is a season that we have. We're going to put on this season together. This first conversation was all about ransomware. We're going to also speak about nation state adversaries and also threats to the cloud. You know, when we're going through this conversation, Adam, and, you know, talking through these episodes, what is a piece of advice or a recommendation that you would have for anyone listening that's about to take the, the, the knowledge from this session and then dive into the report? What's the best way for them to start to uh, look at the report and to ingest it? What we tried to do with this report this this year was to, in years past, it would be like 90 pages. And, it, you know, I think in my mind, it probably sat on a lot of people's desktops in a PDF format and they intended to read it and didn't read it. And so I would say, as you, you look at this report, there was a couple of key themes that, that we hit on uh, to include targeting of cloud what's going on in the e-crime threat landscape, what we've seen from a vulnerability perspective and, and, and how that evolves and what that looks like. And so I think just 
you know, take, take each theme and, and think about how that applies to what it is you're doing, right? If you're, you're trying to protect an enterprise, trying to defend some systems, you know, it's important to understand what target of opportunity are you, right? Are you uh, doing something that's, that's high value to a, a nation state? Are you, are you most concerned about opportunistic criminal activity? Um, are you doing something that might cause hacktivists to focus on, on you and try to deface your website or leak your sensitive information for political purposes? And that really, you know, I think starts the, the, the how you interpret this report is understanding what, why somebody would target you and, and, and what the reasons and, and how they might kind of think about what you do and, and, and target you because of that. Outstanding, Adam. I just want to say thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to hop on the mics. We actually have a few more conversations that we're going to have about this report and everything that's going on in the threat environment. For the folks out there that want to stay up to date with you and even the incredible work that your team is doing, what are the best ways that people can do that? Well, we, we try to put some blogs out there uh, from time to time, and we've uh, also been working. Uh, we certainly have uh, Twitter handles. You, you can follow the CrowdStrike Twitter handle. I'm Adam underscore Cyber, and uh, we're you know we're also kind of thinking about getting our own podcast going. So um, we're 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 you know using these opportunities to learn from you all, and and you guys <laughs> have such a great product. We want to try to kind of understand how how you guys do what you do, and. Uh, look forward, I guess, to a potential uh, adversary universe type of podcast. Love it. Love it. Glad to help. Glad to be a part of it and really appreciate you for being a part of this. And with that, we'll see everyone next time.